A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about the life and times of Rabbi Yaakov Meisha Charlap is dedicated by his descendants in honor of Rav Charlap's 71st yard site just now, Zion Kislev, and also in honor of their esteemed grandfather, Rav Zvulin Charlap's birthday, may he live in good health at Meyev Esrim Shana. So, the story of Yubiak of Meisha Charlap is a very interesting one. Right before I get to it, I wanted just some quick feedback from, I just had the last episode, there was a review of uh, the Ken Burns documentary about the U.S. and the Holocaust, um, I got a lot of great feedback from it. Uh, one mentioned that I should have mentioned when I was criticizing, when I was reviewing the criticism of the United States immigration policy about how they did not allow uh, many Jewish refugees in, I should have pointed out that the documentary also says that the United States allowed many Nazi collaborators from Ukraine, Lithuania, and other places after the war in. So here... This, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a strong uh, con- condemnation of U.S. immigration policy that they did not allow Jewish refugees, but they did allow Nazi collaborators. So that's an important point, and I thank you for reminding me of that. There's another point that uh, someone else, this is one of the best feedbacks I ever got, i got to be honest, ever. Uh, very knowledgeable, very great uh, listener, Jewish History Soundbites, very dedicated, very, very knowledgeable, and this was one of the best ones he's given me. He pointed out, I spoke about the bombing of railroad tracks and railroads and locomotives and stuff like that, and and I point and I mentioned that pinpoint uh, bombing uh, accuracy didn't exist at the time, and he acknowledged that. But he did point out, and apparently this fellow is a military history buff as well, that strafing and strafing runs of of locomotives was quite common. In other words, with machine guns from P forty seven Thunderbolts of the U.S. Uh, Air Force and um, rockets fired from P forty sevens as well. That was quite common. Um, and they would do it all the time to munitions trains and locomotives and to destroy these trains. And it also um, you know, wouldn't just destroy the train, but it also put, put knock the track out of, uh, out of uh, commission for a couple of days because the destroyed train was on the track. 
And he was kind enough to even share with me a couple of YouTube videos about uh, taken from P-47s during the war, um, showing them machine gunning locomotives uh, and it exploding. So there was definitely that existed and it was accurate and it was successful. It was incredibly risky. And it's very questionable how much it would have changed things regarding the Holocaust. And it's easy, easy to argue that it would not have changed much. But for technical accuracy, um, he, he, was, he is correct in pointing out that strafing runs, even if bombing did not, uh, did not take place, but strafing runs of locomotives, moving locomotives on railroad tracks. I just, the only thing that upset me was that he sent me these YouTube videos and the nature of, of YouTube is that I wasted the next two hours watching all kinds of military stuff from World War II because the algorithm all of a sudden brings you up all sorts of other things. So I'm a little upset that he wasted my time like that. But obviously, that's my fault, not his. Um, so before, again, before, that's that's the feedback. And one more last thing is that Jewish History Soundbites is now available on, besides for all the regular platforms, it's available on all kinds of Jewish platforms as well. It was brought to my attention that it's available on all sorts of Jewish podcast platforms and, and Jewish music platforms, one of which uh, I noticed recently is Jewish Tidbits uh, platform. It seems very easy, accessible, easy to use, so you might want to check out um, Jewish Tidbits as well, as well as all the other ones. I'm sure they're all wonderful. It is the yard site, it just was yesterday, the day before, of Rabbi Yaakov Meishe Charlap. Uh, his 71st yard site, he lived from 1882 to 1951. So that would make it his 71st yard site, Zion Kislev, the 7th day of Kislev. Very, very fascinating individual. One of my favorites, actually. Very interesting time period in history, and he certainly exemplified his time period. So his life story certainly reflects that unique time period in Jewish history as well. And also the geographical context, the Yerushalayim on the border between the old Yishev and new. And Rabbi Yaakov Meishe Charlap himself kind of expressed that through his own life story. He's one of the more curious figures as well. And uh, it's definitely an interesting story. So one of the walking tours I do in Yerushalayim um, for tourists that come here and any listener of Jewish History Soundbites is welcome to be in touch with me about my walking tours in Yerushalayim. When you come for a visit, I would love to take you around. So one of them is in the Shari Chesed neighborhood. And much of the story of Rav Charlap um, and, and of the neighborhood, it, it's intertwined between the two. Rav Charlap was there from the beginning of the neighborhood until his passing. He was the rabbi of the neighborhood. Um, he had a yeshiva there. He resided there. So I discuss him rather often. So he's often on my uh, agenda. The Charlap family, um, interestingly enough, it's his ancestors through probably thousands of years. It's an old aristocratic, very important family who trace its roots back to the Exilarchs in Babylon, in Bavel. The, the Reish Galusa in Bavel was, was his ancestor, the ancestors of the Charlap family. In fact, Charlap is an acronym for Chia Reish Legaile. And here there's a dispute what the pay is. It's either Portugal or Poland. So Chia Reish Legaile Portugal or Chia Reish Legaile 
Poland. Uh, there's other versions of it, what it's supposed to be as well. Um, this Chia was this original Chia, was the patriarch of the family. He was part of the Reish Galusa family back in Bavel, um, you know, a couple of thousand years ago. So it was a, they lived in Spain for centuries. From Bavel they moved to Spain, this family. They were a famous and aristocratic Spanish Sephardic Jewish family, the Ibn Yichia family, which is a very, very famous uh, Sephardic Jewish family throughout the generations, is the same family. Yichia is Chia, it's the same thing. Uh, so uh, the original Chia, like I said, it was in Bavel, the family migrates to Spain, they're wealthy financiers, poets, doctors. After the expulsion from Spain, there are branches in Italy, Greece, and Turkey, and one branch of the family migrates north from Italy into the Polish kingdom, where they settle in Tiktin, in the Tiktin area, Tikochin area, north of, of Warsaw, it's, it's, it's near Bialystok, uh, that area of Poland. Uh, there they develop the Charlap name with that acronym that I just mentioned, and they spread all over the region. That's the branch that Rav Yaakov Meshach Charlap came from. So one branch of this Polish family lived in Volkovisk, and it was from there in 1850 that a fellow by the name of Rav Yitzchak Charlap emigrated to Ottoman Palestine to join the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim. By now, of course, in the old Yishuv there were also Ashkenazim, but um, and here they come from a Sephardic family, but now they're Ashkenazi. Of course, this opens up a huge topic of who's really Ashkenazi, in quotation marks, or Sephardic, um, which is a huge topic. It's a great topic. Perhaps we'll speak about it another time. Just give a little spoiler. It has very little to do, perhaps none at all to do, with genetics. And it has a lot to do, or perhaps all to do, with custom and halachic practice of the community that that they adopted. So that's what defines Ashkenazi and Sephardic, not really genetics and race. In other words, you identify as Ashkenazi or Sephardic. Um, you associate with a community that's Ashkenazi or Sephardic. It's not bloodlines. Hitler and the Nazi party was much more about race. Jews are much more about halacha. So they are, the Kharlab family is much, is subsumed into the relatively new Ashkenazi old Yishiv of Yerushalayim. So this Rebitzel Kharlab had a 10 year old son named Zvulun. And he was born in Volkovisk, but he grows up in Yerushalayim, and he's firmly ensconed into that society. He studied in the early years of Eitz Chaim in the old city, in the Churvishul courtyard, and he was also a student of the legendary Yerushalmi leader of Nachum Shadiker, um, the patriarch of the Weisvish family in Yerushalayim. Later on, this Reb Zvulun Charlap was one of the early families to settle outside the old city walls. When he moved to one of the early Nachlaot neighborhoods, Reb Zvulun Charlap emerged as one of the rabbinical leaders of the old Yishev. He headed the Kail Suvalk of the old Yishev, and he served for many years on the Bezdin of Rabbi Shuleib Diskin, who of course was one of the greatest rabbis and tzaddikim of the old Yishev Yerushalayim during the later part of the 19th century. The family was also involved in the building of the Churvashul in the old city. Several children from, um, um, he had several children with his first wife. This was Ol Kharlap, and his first wife passed away. He remarried, and it seems to be his only child from his second marriage was our protagonist, Rabbi Yaakov Meishe Kharlap, 
born in 1882, and he receives the standard education in the Prushim community of the old Yishev. He attends Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, and aside from his own father, who was of course his teacher as well, he also enjoyed a very close uh, re- relationship uh, as a Rebbe if, with, from Rabbi Shmuel Salant, the Rabbi of Yerushalayim at the time, and Rabbi Shuleib Diskin, who I just mentioned his father was on his bezdin, so he was close to Rabbi Shuleib Diskin as well. Um, one of the fascinating things about the life of Rav Charlap and what his life story represents is the combining of all the paradoxes of Yerushalayim life into one unified personality. When we read the books, we have this image of the many divides and many ideological disputes within the old Yishev of Yerushalayim. But you have to understand the geographical um, area of what the old Yishev of Yerushalayim was in the 19th century at that time. It, it was a very small town feel. It was very overcrowded, very small community, small Numbers and population, demographics weren't very large. Everyone knew everyone else and everyone lived next to everyone else. So people like Rav Kharlab were able to enhance their development by seeking out the diverse personalities of Yerushalayim as their teachers and create a synthesis of it all. And perhaps no one did that better than Rabbi Yaakov Maisha Kharlab. Rav Shmuel Salant, who was considered the more moderate, was one of his teachers, while Rav Shmuel Diskin, who was the great zealot, the great Kanoi, was was also one of his teachers. Um, and um, Rav Kharlab was also uh, very close um, um, uh, with many of the other Tzadik Mishlam, I'll mention some of them. Even more interesting uh, was his relationship with one of the greatest and most unique Yerushalayim Tzadikim of that time period, the great Kabbalist mystic Reb Hirsch Michal Shapiro. And Reb Charlap was one of his closest students. He studied Kabbalah with him. He adopted Reb Hirsch Michal's prescribed uh, mystical behavior and fasting and, and all kinds of abstaining from, from things and and you know he he adopted that as a practice, a very intense lifestyle. Later on, Rav Cook, who would convince Rav Charlap to abstain from some of these more um, um, uh, mannerisms of fasting and, and, and you know things like that, he he, he took him away from that. Um, but following Rav Hirsch Michel's passing in 1906, Rav Yaakov published his Torah works. Uh, other teachers of Rav Charlap included the legendary Yerushalayim Tzadik, Rav Shleim Zalman Baran. Uh, there was another one who was one of the leading Warsaw rabbis who immigrated to the Holy Land in his later years. That was Rav Yaakov Chaim Naftali Zilberberg. Uh, I discussed him actually in an earlier episode quite some time ago, which focused on the Warsaw Rabbinate. So you can check out more about him there. Rav Shuleib Diskin's son, Rav Yitzchak Diskin, who moved to Yerushalayim following his father's passing. Um, so Rav Charlap and he were chavrusas. They studied together for many, many years. Uh, of course, Rav Yitzchak was also considered a great zealot, close to Rav Chaim Zanerfeld and Rav Charlap at this time as a student of Rav Cook, and yet the two of them are studying as chavrusas for many years. In fact, through the prism of the life story and social connections of of Rav Charlap, we pretty much have the entire gamut of the rich history of the old Yish of Yerushalayim at the turn of the century. Um, Rav Charlap would study Torah throughout the day while he wore his talis and tefillin. Very often he would study through the night as well. Um, he was well known as one of the greatest young uh, Torah scholars of Yerushalayim up and coming when he was 16, which was quite a common age at the time to marry. He married 
Pasya, um, his first wife. She was a niece of Reb Davidel Friedman, Reb Davidel Karliner. And because she was his niece, Reb Charlak, Reb Charlak took this familial connection as an opportunity to maintain an active correspondence with him, who was... He was one of the leading rabbis in the world, in the Russian Empire at the time. Later on in life, his wife passed away, and he married a widow in Yerushalayim named Ida Rivka Davidovsky. She was the daughter of Rav Shleim Anasin Cutler, who was living out his last years in Yerushalayim at the time. He was a fascinating historical figure as well, and I discussed him at at uh, some length, quite some time ago, when I had an episode about the early rabbis who taught at Ritz, at Rebitzikul Chanan, later on, YU. So, Rebbe and Cutler is discussed there. We actually go to Rebbe and Cutler's uh, grave in Harazesim. That's another walking tour in Yerushalayim. Later on, he went on to his third wife, his, his, when, when she passed away, so he married Rebitzin Devorah Kohn. Um, so he was married three times. Now, because of the influence of Reb Hirsch Michal Shapiro, Reb Charlap adopted several Kabbalistic customs. Like I, like I mentioned before, he had this, and Reb Charlap had this intense personality, a certain seriousness about him, his mystical behavior. Um, his davening was famous throughout Yerushalayim. His rendition of Shiras Hayam on the seventh night of Pesach was so popular that many would trek to Shari Chesed uh, from other neighborhoods around Yerushalayim just to hear it. Um, he was very particular about never leaving the land of Israel. He said he would never leave the land of Israel for any money in the world. And when he later accompanied Rev Cook on a Masaha Moshavot to travel around all the new um, settlements up in the north, uh, the plan was to take, a, when they were finished, was to take a boat from Haifa back to Yafo because it was quicker. Rev Charlap was concerned that the boat would leave the halachic waters of Eretz Yisrael, so he chose to return via a land route, and he separated from the group. Uh, his favorite mitzvah, actually, was sukkah. He would not leave his sukkah the entire week of sukkah. So he even arranged to have a minion inside his sukkah, and he davened in his sukkah the whole week. He slept there, he ate there, obviously, but he also just spent all his time. He never exited. He, I guess, you know, just go to the bathroom, stuff like that. But he, he, he only left for officially for two visits, two official visits, once to go to the Kaisel on Sukkot, and the other one was to visit Rav Kook, to be Mekabal Pnei Rabbi Beregel, to visit one's teacher on the holiday. Otherwise, he would not leave his Sukkah the entire week, an incredible love for the mitzvah. He embarks on a rabbinical career as a recognized Paisik and halachic matters while in his 20s, and with the establishment of the Shari Chesed neighborhood in 1909, he was appointed its first rabbi at the age of 27, and he served in that position from the neighborhood's inception until his passing in 1951. So that's a 42 years um, he was the rabbi there. Several years later, in the 1920s, the neighboring neighborhood of Rechavia was constructed and established. The two neighborhoods are in close proximity, they're actually next to each other, but they're of a vast, they were at that time, of a vastly different demographic makeup. Um, Shari Chesed was an old Yishuv neighborhood, an old Yishuv Ashkenazi neighborhood of scholars, of tzaddikim, a very, very old Yishuv type of a neighborhood. And Rechavia was, from the start, a much more secular neighborhood, first the uh, Sephardic financial elite of Yerushalayim. Very quickly it became 
uh, refugees from Germany, um, professors, doctors, professors of university, physicians, very secular, very intellectual, very elitist, very wealthy, political elite, a lot of the famous politicians of the state of Israel, all secular, lived there. And so it was juxtaposed two neighborhoods, which is a fascinating story that I talk about on those walking tours. But what's even more interesting is that Rav Charlap was appointed the rabbi of Rechavia as well. And over the ensuing decades, he balanced this leadership's incredible balancing act, navigating the diverse communities under his leadership, speaking to Rechavia members one way, speaking to to Shari Chesed community in different way, different style, different language, and he managed to remain in good graces by both neighborhoods, which was no small accomplishment in Yerushalayim to be in good graces with anybody. So, of course, to be in graces with people from opposite ends and to be the rabbi of both is really an impressive accomplishment. So, uh, he was um, in in, in Shari Chesed, he was uh, some... In, in, in fact, in, in Shari Chesed Simchas Taira, they would dance him home and they would sing, you know, they, they did Geshem, and, and they start saying, you start saying Geshem on Simchas Taira. So um, they would sing Mashiv Haruach Umerit HaGeshem on his way home, and this way they would repeat it many times so they wouldn't have to be concerned about forgetting it afterwards, which was a custom in Yerushalayim at the time, but they would dance him home singing that song. He would deliver Chaburas in his home, little Shi'urim, classes in his home to students from the Chevron Yeshiva, and he was uh, appointed a Rebbe in his alma mater, Eitz Chaim, so he was a Rebbe in Eitz Chaim for quite some time, and he rose to a leadership position in the wider Jewish community of Shalim. he represented the community in various capacities, he worked together with Rebbe Zalman Meltzer and Rebbe Tzlach Isaac Herzog, both of whom who he was very close, also with Rebbe Shalim Zevin, uh, with the Talmudic Encyclopedia Project, the initiative of Mayor Barilan. So he worked with a lot of other rabbis at the time. He authored many svarim in his own right. Um, the svarim that he wrote were named for his father and mother. Um, the base Zvul svarim were named for his father, Reb Zvulun, and the May Maraim set of his, uh, his svarim were named for his mother, Miriam. So he joins a, a very, very few people in Jewish history who did that. The Stipler who wrote Birkas Peretz, uh, his father was Peretz, his mother was Bracha, and the Naidi Yehuda, who wrote the Naidi Yehuda, uh, was named for his father Yehuda, and his mother was, uh, he wrote his Sefer Tzlach, Tzien L'Nefesh Chai, his mother was Chai, so Rav Charlap joins those few who wrote their Sfarim and named them for his parents. He also opened the yeshiva in Shari Chesed called Beis Zvul, also named for his father, Reb Zvulun, and it's there till today. Uh, it was opened in 1945, and he delivered regular shiurim there while he was already the Rosh Hashiva of Merkaz Harav. So he was delivering regular shiurim in both places, regular, almost daily shiurim in both Beis Zvul and Merkaz Harav. He was also, of course, serving as the rabbi of two neighborhoods at the same time and writing his farm. He was quite busy. Um, Beis Zvul was consisted primarily of married students. It was kind of like more like a kailo than a yeshiva. It was initially located in the Grashul in Shari Chesed, and following Reb Charlap's passing, it was moved to his house, where it remains until today. Um, several of his sons and sons-in-law were served at times at a tent. Several prominent alumni, I'll just mention one of them, was Reb Yitzhak Zilberman, who's famous today. His the Zilberman community is founded in the old city. His sons run it today. Um, so he was from Shari Chesed, and he was a close student of Rav Charlap, so in Beis Zvul. 
So perhaps the most important facet of Rav Charlap's life and legacy is, uh, and certainly the most influential person on him and his life and his approach to life, his approach to leadership, his worldview, everything about him, was Rav Charlap's long-time relationship with Rav Mitzchak HaKayin Cook. Uh, I can say with a certain degree of certainty, um, certain degree of certainty, it sounded funny, that Rav Charlap was Rav Cook's closest student. They had an incredibly close relationship. Shortly after Rav Cook arrived in Yafo, as the rabbi of Yafo in 1904, the 21-year-old Rav Charlap was advised by his doctor to do some swimming in the ocean for health reasons, so he went down to Yafo to go swimming, and he remained there for Shavuos, and he davens at the Yeshiva Shari Torah, the local yeshiva where Rav Cook was, and he heard Rav Cook recite Akdamus on Shavuos morning. And Rav Chalap later said that when he heard Rav Kook say Akdamus, he was enraptured. He, he said it was an electrifying experience. It was a life-changing experience. His life changed forever. He did not introduce himself at that opportunity. But shortly afterwards, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank introduced them to each other. And very quickly, Rav Chalap became his closest student or made devoted to him for the rest of his life. Their closeness was this intense Rebbe-Talmud relationship. It's quite unique. Uh, very few times in Jewish history do you see such a description of that in the annals of Rebbe Talmud relationships that uh, their close Rav Cook testified that sometimes he sensed from afar what Rav Charlap was up to and going through. Rav Cook's last words on his deathbed were supposedly calling Rav Yaakov Maisha Charlap. Rav Cook guided him and taught him and shared his worldview and philosophy and all of his Torah with him. Rav Charlap, in fact, published a sefer in defense of Rav Kook's Orot uh, sefer. There had been opposition to it, so Rav Charlap wrote the sefer Taivim Ma'oyres in, in defense, and later on it was republished in his May Marom multi-volume work. Um, Rav Charlap accompanied Rav Kook on his first Masa HaMoshavot in 1914, when they went together with Rav Chaim Zanefeld, actually, together to, to visit all the new Yishuv, all the new settlements, uh, around the country and encourage them to come closer to a Jewish way of life and observance. And then Rav Charlap accompanied Rav Kook a second time in the second Masaha Moshevot in 1923, together with the Rabbi of Tel Aviv, Rav Shleim Aronson. Following Rav Kook's passing in 1935, Rav Charlap was pressured to submit his candidacy to be his successor as the chief rabbi of the land of Israel under the British Mandate. Allegedly, Rav Charlap did not want to, but he succumbed to the pressure and submitted his candidacy. The other candidate was Rav Yitzhak Herzog, who ultimately was the one who won and became the chief rabbi, and not Rav Charlap, who did not win the election. The story goes that the... Uh, I mean, that story is, that the election is an interesting story. Um, Rav Charlap conceded the election, which is the custom when people lose an election, they concede. It was a contentious election, lots of politics... The story goes that Rav Charlap was happy that Rav Herzog won because he did not want it in the first place, and he only submitted his candidacy because of pressure from others. The story goes even further by saying that Rav Charlap would go so far as to recite the blessing, presumably without Hashem's name, Baruch She'asali Neis Bamakim Hazeh, whenever he passed the building where the elections for chief rabbi took place. Meaning he, didn't re- he really did not want to become the chief rabbi. But he did succeed, Rav Kook, in another place, in Merkaz Arav, where he was already from the beginning. 
From the founding of Merkaz Arav, Rav Kook had hired Rav Charlap to be a Rebbe there. He delivered regular shiurim there from the beginning. So he was around there, and he just succeeds him as um, as the Rosh Hashiva when Rav Kook passes away. Um, he delivered a Gemara shiur, and he gave all kinds of other chaburas and vadim, smaller classes and other topics, and amuna and and all kinds of things that are very popular, and many from outside of the yeshiva would come as well. Hasidim would come, and yeshiva students, all kinds of people would come to hear Rav Charlap's, uh, you know, more unofficial classes. So when uh, when he becomes Rosh Hashiva, so he starts delivering a weekly shir klali. The yeshiva was quite small during this time; it shrunk, and very few students. But many students from the other yeshivas in Yerushalayim would come to hear his shir, um, primarily from Chevron. Chevron uh, Yeshiva and Parat Yosef, Rabbi Sin Abba Shaul said he would go to hear Rav Chalab uh, Shurim from Parat Yosef. He would go to to Merkaz and many students from Chevron also would come. Um, so during the 1948 War of Independence, there was a dispute between Rav Chalab and the son of Rav Kook, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kook, um, regarding Yeshiva students in Merkaz their participation in the uh, military. Uh, during the 1948 war. So Rav Chalap was against it. He said, you know, the Yeshiva students should get a deferment. And Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk said, no, they should all join the military. So because some of the students listened to Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, so the Yeshiva shrunk even further, and it was a very small Yeshiva at the time. So when Rav Chalap passed away in 1951, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk succeeded him as the Yeshiva, along with Rav Rom Shapiro who lived a long life. I remember I remember when he passed away a few years ago. Now his, his son is actually the Rashiva in America's Um So because he was a, a close student of Rav Kook, um, he adopted many, much of his worldview as far as Eretz Yisrael and as far as Eschalta de Geula. Rabbi Yaakov Meshach Harlap refrained from politics, from political parties, and from political association. He stayed away from a lot of the political bickering, which was so common in the Yerushalayim of his day. But he definitely uh, saw, and he, unlike Rav Kook, saw the establishment of the State of Israel. So he saw the establishment of the State of Israel as the beginning of the redemption. It's known as the Eschalta de Geula. So one can say that he was a Zionist without the politics. Um, and he followed his teacher of Cook as far as the land of Israel, its rebuilding, and he also followed him in the way that he viewed the secularists, secularists in a positive light. The whole philosophy of Rav Cook basically was adopted by his student Rav Yaakov Meishe Charlap. Rav Charlap passed away in 1951 when Harazesim was cut off under Jordanian control. So he's buried in the Sanhedria Cemetery. I've got to point out that the Sanhedrin Cemetery is an underrated cemetery. Not enough groups uh, who come here request a tour of it in Yerushalayim. It's a pity. It's very conveniently located, very centrally located. It's easy to get to. It's not so big, so it's not a lot of walking. And there's tons of history there. It's tons of famous personalities, renowned Sadiqim. Um, I wish I would be giving more tours to groups there. I do tours there, of course, as well. So next time in Yerushalayim, if you're interested in something a little bit more, ironically, off the beaten track, even though it's like right outside Ramada Shkol, um, we can go there. Rav Charlap's uh, descendants uh, you know, took on rabbinical positions as well. He had three sons and four daughters. One son was Rabbi Chil Michal. 
was a rabbi in the Bronx. He's the only one who moved to the United States. His son is Rav Zvulun Charlap, may he live and be well, who's the longtime dean of Yeshiva University and the head of, head of Young Israel, is the rabbi of Young Israel in the Bronx, and me, among many other accomplishments. Another son of Rav Charlap was a rabbi in Rishon Lezion, another was a Rosh Hashiva in Beis Zvul, along with one of Rav Charlap's sons-in-law. The other sons-in-law, one was a rabbi in Zuchan Meish in Yerushalayim, one was a rabbi in Tel Aviv, one was a rabbi... In uh, in Chadera, um, it's amazing. All I'm sorry in Nes Excuse me, I say Chadera Nes It's closer to Tel Aviv. It's amazing that all seven of his children were rabbis or Rashi Yeshiva. He had many famous students as well, but we'll save that for another time. So this was uh, about Rav Charlap. This is Yehuda Geber, Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudayehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.